0: Through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. O Lord, would you, by the power of your Son, bring life. Lord, for those who are with us this morning and who do not know you, would they be able to say that they were dead, but now they are alive? Lord, would you hear these words and use them for your glory? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, in William Golding's novel, The Lord of the Flies, a group of British schoolboys, ages 6 to 12, are marooned on an island after their airplane crashed over the ocean. They are filled with sadness at what happened, excitement at being on an island, and fear as to what the future holds. Most of the boys want to live for the moment, enjoying the beach, eating the fresh fruit. But a few of the older boys, especially two named Piggy and Ralph, realize that to survive, they must consider the future and work together. Another older boy even said, we've got to have rules and obey them. After all, We're not savages, we're English. And the English are best at everything. Well, as the story progresses, cracks begin to emerge in them not being savages. The rules don't mean much to a boy named Jack once he is not voted as leader, instead Ralph is. From that point on, Jack only cares about rules when they help him. And he wants the power to hunt the wild pigs with whoever will follow him. In contrast... Ralph wants to escape the island, and he wants to make sure they always have a fire lit on the highest hill so that they will be seen by ships passing by. The smoke will be seen. Well, as you can imagine, for boys aged 6 to 12, watching a fire, or hunting pigs, hunting pigs won out. And then so Jack takes his group out, and they kill a pig, and they roast it. And then, through an odd series of events... They works them up in a frenzy. They put on war paint, so to speak, and they're dancing around like savages. And in a confusion, another boy comes stumbling in the dark, and they accidentally kill him too. Well, the boys rationalize it. They try to not talk about it. They try to avoid it. But things only spiral worse. And Ralph cries out pleadingly, Guys, which is better, law and rescue, or hunting and breaking things up? Well, I won't ruin the rest of the story, But suffice it to say that Jack bullies and terrorizes till they do far worse than accidentally kill someone. William Golding's novel is driving the reader to ask the question, what is it that makes us and keeps us moral? Why is it that we do wicked things? Golding rebukes the idea, well, if we can just give them education and a good culture, that will make them do what's right. Over and over he brings up that they were the best. They're British. They were trained in right and wrong. They have laws and order. And yet, even these soon developed into oppression, tyranny, and murder. What could lead them to act in such a way? Well, what about all of us, though? We all do things that we tell other people, you shouldn't do that. Why does every single society in this world have laws? Have ways to enforce those laws and punishments for breaking those laws. What could we do to fix society so that we don't have to be constrained by laws? And however however you answer those questions, your solution will only be as good as the accuracy of your diagnosis. Imagine you have a child who has a headache and you give them some Advil or some ibuprofen or whatever. Well, that will only work... If you get to the underlying issues, if they're dehydrated, you can give them all the medicine they want, but you also have to give them water, because as soon as the medicine wears off, the headache's going to return. So you need to get to the right diagnosis. And Paul, like a good doctor, is going to explain to us this morning the diagnosis of the human condition. He's then going to give us three triggers that reveal, that show that we have this condition, And then he's going to show the results if we don't get the, the problem, our condition, fixed. But first, Paul gives the diagnosis. Verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now automatically, you recognize something rather odd. You were dead and you walked. How are dead men and women walking? Well, because Paul is not talking about a physical death. Rather, he wants us to realize that our condition, our problem, is a spiritual death. God warned our first parents, Adam and Eve, the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Well, God didn't lie. They did die that day, though they did not die physically. They died spiritually. Now, it may seem that Paul is only talking about the Ephesians, because he says, you were dead, in the sense in which you walked. So maybe he's just talking about the Ephesians. However, in verse 3, Paul makes it inclusive of all people by saying that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. That's when Paul gives this diagnosis of the human condition. He doesn't merely give it to a selective group of bad apples. Okay, yeah, there's some people in this world they're dead spiritually. No, he's saying every person, men and women, adults and children, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, it doesn't matter, every person is dead. In their sins. Now Paul expounds on what these actions were. That showed our dead relationship to God. Their trespasses and sins. Now people will often reject this. Well well, I'm not spiritually dead. I'm a spiritual person. I'm spiritually alive. And yet true spirituality. Submits to Jesus. Honors God's word. And wants to obey and worship him. With all of their life. It is a life that doesn't focus on self. It's a life that focuses on God and others. And yet, in contrast, all of us are born with an innate desire to say, Mine. And no one has to teach their children how to throw fits when they don't get their way. It's natural. Because we're all naturally dead in our sin. Our fits. Our selfishness are the natural manifestations of our sinful nature in trespasses and sins. Now, this is not just Paul's view. Sometimes people will say, well, well, that's Pauline theology. No, this is what the whole Bible teaches. This is what Jesus taught. In Luke 11, 13, when Jesus was talking to people about prayer, he said this, If you then, and he adds, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus just assumes that we are evil people. Or in Luke 18, a man comes to Jesus and he asks him, Good teacher, what must a man do to inherit eternal life? And yet Jesus responds by asking him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now our culture will admit, well yes, yes, no one's perfect, but we still want to believe that everyone is basically good. Well, Jesus attacks that assumption by saying no one is good except God alone. Now, when the Bible says, when Jesus is saying we're dead in our sins, it does not mean, so please hear me, it does not mean we're as bad as we can be. Obviously, we're not hunting each other down like in Lord of the Flies. Or at least I don't know of anyone doing that. And there have been many societies where there's not a single Christian, and yet people in that society are loving and kind they care for their children well why how can we say we're dead in our sins and yet we look around and we see people who are kind Well, because god has given us his common grace that he doesn't let us be as wicked as we could be god has also given us his law on our hearts so that we have a conscience that restrains us to not do all that we could do as well this truth that we're dead in our sins does not mean we're all equally bad There are clearly some men, some women, who are more sinful than other men and other women. That's just obvious. And even sometimes, there are non-Christians who are kinder than Christians. Rather, the point when we say that we're dead in our sins, is that no one in humanity and no part of our being has been untouched by the stain of sin. The stain that makes every one of us consider ourselves more important than others that says what i want to do is more important than what god tells me to do let's just consider three simple facts that show this first and i mentioned this a couple weeks ago but i think it makes the point so well so let me repeat it a couple years ago we bought a bag of sugar and on the top of the bag it said do not look at the bottom now you don't have to have a phd in sociology. You don't need to go study psychology. What does every single person then want to do? Look at the bottom back. Well, how can these marketers know that every person is going to want to do the exact opposite of what they're told? Well, because whether they call it being dead in sin or not, they know that in every single person is the desire to do the exact opposite of what an authority tells them. We know innately instinctively that there is something wrong with us or let's consider back just two years march 2020 and the covid lockdowns are beginning in two days and what happened the stores were ransacked i can still visibly remember walking down the aisles of Sam's, seeing empty shelf after empty shelf and going do i really need 50 pounds of beans that's about all that's left i don't know i guess we could make it now none of these people started the two-week quarantine or a lockdown with empty shelves. But they all thought of me. I'm going to make sure I get through this quarantine. There was not a thought of how can I serve others. You know, it's easy when we're rich and wealthy and everything's fine for everyone to be sharing. We show whether we're truly loving and truly caring for others when there's scarcity. And what did we as a society do? Everyone said, I'm thinking of me. That is showing Our sinner, let's get really personal. Who would be fine if your thoughts and your actions for the last year could be projected on these screens? Let's just go to this last week. I'd be somewhere going about 100 out of this town if you could see mine. Because in us are thoughts and desires that are not the way they should be. And we all know that. The amazing truth is that we're actually far worse than we can imagine. But we are also more loved than we can ever dream. God knows all the ugliness of our hearts. He has seen the video. He's watched. He's seen every thought, every action. And yet He still offers us complete forgiveness. He still beckons us, knowing all that we are. Will you come and be my sons and daughters? And this leads to a very important part because Paul is describing what the Ephesians were, past tense. But if you have not trusted in Christ, this still describes who you are, present tense. Yet there is hope, for God is rich in mercy, and He makes dead people come to life. He saves us by His grace, not by our efforts, and He calls us to turn from our sins to trust Christ Yet sadly, this basic teaching, this foundational idea of the Christian faith, is rejected not just by non-Christians, but even Christians. Some of you may know that every two years, Ligonier Ministries, along with some entity, does a survey of theology. And they pose this question, or this statement, and do you agree or disagree? The statement read, Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. Well, 71% of the U.S. agreed and 21% disagreed. Well, in the wider culture, we're disappointed. I think it doesn't fit the facts, but nonetheless, that's what people thought. But then when you look at the church, 65% of evangelicals agreed that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. And yet here we have very clearly, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The problem is to misunderstand our condition is to misunderstand the solution and God. Our condition is so bad that we don't merely need to change from some bad behaviors to some good behaviors. Our condition is so bad that we need to go from death to life. And no one can move someone from death to life except God. Our only hope will be found in God. And yet, before moving to the next section, so why don't we grasp our condition? I mean, we can look at just so many obvious ways that we're all so selfish. Why don't we grasp it? Well, because one of Satan's and one of sin's masterful strokes is to deceive us. That one of the very effects of sin is to make us say, we're not sinners. Unless God opens our eyes to see how desperately we need him, we'll continue to believe the lie of Satan that, You know what? I can fix this problem. I can do it. You know, I can become more religious. I can be good enough. I can do enough things that God will then accept me. Me, me, me. I, 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 I can do it. And salvation is when we get our eyes off ourselves and look to the Savior and say, I can't do this. I deserve your judgment. I desperately need you to save me from sin. That's is when he saves us. Jesus is our only hope. And may I quickly add, that recognizing you are a sinner, is really good news? A lot of people, oh, this is pessimistic, this is bad news. Well consider, that you go to the doctor, and you're as sick as a dog. You don't want them to go, hey it's alright, we all get sick sometimes. (laughs) No I'm sick now, what's wrong with me? I want to get better. You don't want the doctor to give you these nice platitudes. You want him to say, this is your problem, and this is the only drug that can fix it. When we know the depth of our sinful heart, it's not encouraging for someone to go, oh, we all do bad things at times. We go, no, there's darkness in here. I need someone, I need something to change me. We want the truth. A good doctor tells you the news. You may not like the news, But it's good news that you now know what the problem is. And you now know the solution. So, Dr. Paul, so to speak, has given us the diagnosis of our condition. And now he tells us three triggers that lead to the symptoms of our diagnosis. What is it that leads to show that we are sinful and dead in our sins? Well, first, it's stated in verse 2. The first is the world. It says this way, We were following... The course of this world and the sins in which we once walked. Now when the New Testament uses the word world, it describes several different ideas. It might mean planet Earth as opposed to Mars or Venus or Jupiter or the other planets. It might mean world like the entire universe. But sometimes it uses the word world to describe a mindset against God. And that's what Paul has in mind here. It's similar to what's said in 1 John 4, 5. They are from the world. Now, John's not saying as though they're from Neptune or something. He's saying they're from this worldly mindset, the mindset against God. And then he continues, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. As they speak to other people who are against God, maybe not even realizing it, they agree with them and they listen to them. And the battle for the believer is that the world is always trying to mold us, is trying to shape us to think like it, to live like them. In contrast, Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of the Lord is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Thus, to understand what leads people to sin, the first thing we have to realize is the influence of the world. Yet that is not all the Bible teaches about the triggers of sin, for Ephesians two, two also says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, the devil or Satan. And throughout the New Testament, we read of Satan tempting and leading people to sin. Thus, when Jesus was with his disciples at the Last Supper, it says in John thirteen twenty-seven: then, after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. While Judas was fully responsible, Satan still led Judas to betray Jesus. When Ananias lied in Acts 5 about how much money he gave the church, Peter asked him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? God exhorting married couples in 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, That you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul is saying it's not just the world that tempts you, that triggers your sin, it's also the devil. And yet, he's noticing the third one that we'll see in Ephesians, and that is that we also have a responsibility because he says we have self-control. We can do what we're called to do, but we're weak. And we see this third one in Ephesians 2, 3, the third trigger that reveals our sinful nature. Nature. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now we need to quickly note, Paul's not saying that all desires of the body are bad. For example, the desire for food or sleep or marital intimacy are good desires. The problem is when our desires go outside of God's realm for them, God's bounds, or when we live as though those desires will ultimately satisfy us. Notice, though, that Paul says our bodies and minds wanted to commit these deeds. In other words, we're culpable. Jesus also believed this, and he said in Matthew 15, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Jesus didn't say... Well, the devil always makes you do it. Or the world is always causing you to do it. Nor did he say, your environment causes these actions. Or your chemical imbalances or your parental upbringing causes these things. All of those are important and all of those are factors. But out of our own heart, out of our own desires, come our sin. A friend once shared with me a story from his life that has always helped me grasp this idea. But he lived in the country, and he had a well repairman come out. The repairman did all the checks, and at the end he said, Do you want me to flush out the dirty water? And my friend said, Well, there's no dirty water in my tank. It's all clean. So the repairman then just took his pressure gauge and pumped the pressure up in the tank and out flowed the nastiest, ugliest, dark, muddy water. And my friend was so shocked. He goes, Where did that come from? He said, Well, it was there all along. It was the pressure... That brought it to the surface. And the Bible, whether that be Jesus, Paul, or anyone else, teaches that we are like that water tank. And that in the bottom of us is dirt and scum and every nasty thing. You know, we think we're pure and clean, but then what happens? The pressures of life. We see a bag that says, don't look at the bottom. We have a lockdown. And what then comes out? What was already in our hearts. The next thing we know, the pressures of life are then leading us to snap at others, to covet, to withdraw and deprive it and view inappropriate material. We hurt others rather than love them and we do all kinds of evil. But listen to this important part though because this is essential to understanding our condition. The pressures do not create the problems. They only serve to reveal the deeper issues, the problems, the sins of the heart. Again, the pressures of our life, the bad cell phone service, the sickness you have, the bad finances, the kids, whatever it is, those don't create the sin and problems in your life. They only reveal what was already there. And so the Bible calls us to be brutally honest with ourselves And realize that while problems exist in the world, there are real issues out there. And we're not trying to deny them. The biggest problem is not out there. The biggest problem is in us. We are the problem. Thus, Dr. Paul shows us the diagnosis. We are dead in our sin. And now he shows the three triggers that lead us to sin and reveal our deadness. And it's really important to recognize all three of these if we're going to win the war imagine a country deciding to go to war and deciding well we're only going to care about the land or the sea or the air we're not going to try and win all three of those that'd be too much well they would be doomed to fail imagine if they said well we'll take care of two of them we'll make sure we win the land battle and we make sure we win the sea battle well they'd have more of a chance but if they don't take care of the air battle they're probably still doomed to fail to win the military has to recognize we got to win on the land, we got to win on the sea, and we got to win in the air. And so, in our spiritual battle, we must consider the world, the flesh, and the devil. When we lose sight of all three of those triggers, then we have problems. Let's say if we only focus on our heart and don't consider the influence of the world and those around us, well, then we'll be what 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty three says: Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You know, we're deceived if we think, well, you know what, it's just my heart, so I can just listen to all the secular music in the world. I can just watch all these movies. It doesn't bother me. It's just what's inside me. Well, no. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, the point is not that you should never listen to secular music or never watch a secular movie, because that's the other extreme. Well, everything's out there. God calls us to go into the world. So we should know some wisely of what's going on. So to honor Christ, we have to go there. But we have to realize it's not just out there. The issue's also in here. As you read history, you see time and again where Christians isolate themselves. Let's go create the perfect community. We'll have a utopia. We'll just have Christian families. And we'll raise Christian children. The problem is, they can keep the world out but they can't keep their hearts out. And so they take into the community all the problems that exist throughout the world. Now, some don't physically withdraw into a commune, yet they act as though, well, if I only put my children around Christians, if I only listen, let them listen to Christian music and only let them read Christian books and we only do everything Christian, they'll be fine. Well, there are times in which you should be wise in those areas. But again, it's the world, the flesh and the devil you must get down to your child's heart and merely fleeing the world will not win the battle against sin so we focus on some errors of being overwhelmed by only focusing on the world or only focusing on the flesh but what are some errors from only focusing on the devil Well, will see as lewis said it best in the screw tape letters there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And 80 years later, Lewis's words still ring true. You know, it's not just rational, materialist skeptics who deny the existence of anything that can't be seen, felt, touched, or dissected in a laboratory. You often, Christians, functionally live as though spiritual forces are not real because they never pray. You're not entering into the spiritual combat against the spiritual forces if you're not a person of prayer. Now, let's be clear we're not talking about a little red guy in tights who whispers temptations on one shoulder, while a little guy with white tights is whispering temptations on this shoulder. Satan is a deceptive angel of light, and he doesn't fit the caricatures we make of him. But he's not only an angel of light, he's also a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Thus, we must resist him and be wise to the temptations he puts in our mind. And yet, now, while some will deny, well, it's Satan, all that, that's nonsense, some people go to the other extreme and are unhealthily interested in them every issue in your life is not a demon that needs to be cast out demons are real but they aren't the only source of temptation often i think they don't need much help because my sinful heart tempts me quite a lot already yet rather than denying spiritual beings or being excessively interested in them we should realize jesus superiority over and conquering of them you know, over, over, over and over in the Gospels, Jesus clearly and decisively and easily overcame the demons. We sang earlier, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can not endure, for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. Now that's not like some magic phrase, some little word. The little word is... The Word made flesh. Jesus. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And so we don't need to fear, but we do need to be aware of the battle that exists against the world, against our flesh, and against the devil. So Paul, the doctor, so to speak, has given us the diagnosis. We're dead in our sins. He's given us the trigger that shows our symptoms. We have the world tempting us, our flesh tempts us, and the devil tempts us. But what will be the result if we don't get the right treatment? And that's our third and last point, the result. Now many Americans, and perhaps you, have struggled, as I have argued for us, having sinful natures. You see some of the points I've made, but you wonder if it's maybe a little too pessimistic. The talk of the devil was a real trip, but you think, well, there maybe are some spiritual forces out there. However, but for many, what Paul says in verse 3 is the final straw. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul declares that every person in all humanity are by nature facing God's wrath. Well, that idea seems to be too much because we believe in a kind, gentler God. A wrathful God seems archaic, primitive, and probably only stated by people like me to cause people to fear and lead them into being manipulated. Let me pose a question. How do you know God really loves you? I really, really want to believe that donuts, hamburgers, and milkshakes will get me in shape. I utterly dislike the idea that if I eat those things, I may get into a shape I don't like. And yet my thoughts about what I want to be true don't matter one bit. I can wish that to be true all I want, but it's not true. How do we know God loves us? How do we know that anyone loves us? Well, the way you know someone truly loves you is when it costs them something, To maintain their love. You know, God's love is not just sentimental feelings, for out of love, God bore the greatest cost. God the Father sent His one and only Son to die, to conquer sin by taking its penalty. And God the Son willingly took that punishment upon Himself. On the cross, Jesus took the wrath of God because God does not overlook any sin. Rather, He punishes that either on us or on His Son. That's why 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation refers to a sacrifice of atonement, which means that Jesus' death removed God's wrath. You may have heard of several years ago, now probably pushing a decade and a half, there was a denomination in our country that was making a new hymnal. And they wanted to include in the hymnal the Getty song and Christ alone. Except, there was one phrase in there that they did not want to include. So, being honest people, they wrote the Getty's a letter and said, could we change one phrase? We don't like the fact that in your hymn it says, on the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. Could we change it to, On the cross, the love of God was magnified. Sounds a good phrase. The love of God was magnified. Well, the Gettys wrote back and refused. And the denomination refused to put the song in their hymnal. And yet the sad irony is that the way the love of God is magnified is if you talk about the wrath of God being satisfied. The very thing they are supposedly wanting to lift up, which we should want to lift up, the love of God is only seen as we recognize God's wrath towards sin. You know, If Jesus was not on the cross to satisfy God's just wrath, then it would have been cruel for the Father to send Him to die. If there was any other way for justice to have been met, then God is not loving to send His one and only Son to do something that didn't really need to happen. Thus, we know God loves us. Not just, we hope He loves us, like I hope I can eat donuts and drink milkshakes to be in shape. No, we know God loves us, for He did not arbitrarily remove His wrath, but He took it and placed it on Himself, on His Son. And the truth is that any loving person, often, or at times, we should say, is filled with wrath. Becky Piper writes, Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers far from it anger isn't the opposite of love hate is and the final form of hate is indifference if i a flawed narcissistic sinful woman can feel pain and anger over someone's condition how much more a morally perfect god who made them god's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the inside of the human race, which he loves with his whole being. So there really is no choice. If you take away God's justice and wrath, then you undercut any meaning to his love. God has wrath because he is love. Well, having received the doctor's diagnosis of our condition, it then allows us to recognize what will and will not be legitimate solutions. You know, if we introduce some better legislation in our society, will spiritually dead people become alive? Well, what if we have better education or removed people from the brink of starvation or even perhaps had some wealth redistribution? Would that solve the problem? Well, of course not. There is no human solution to our deepest problem. But thanks be to God, that notice what it says in verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now in saying this, the Bible is not saying that we shouldn't care about better legislation, better education, medical care, or removing starvation. We are called to love our enemies and to care for the poor. The Bible is clear that that means practical, tangible things such as providing food, clothing, shelter, Those are loving ways to alleviate some of the pain in this sin-cursed world. And yet, when we turn to those things and think, we're going to make this world a utopia, we're going to make everything better by only these things, then we're naive to the reality of our sinful condition. We can never legislate away the sinful heart. And so we need both. For this temporal world, yes, we need those things, but ultimately, in this world and in the world to come, We need Jesus. We need to be born again. And as I wrap up, you may be wondering, so is the message that we're worthless junk? We're just scum? We're worms? Now, sadly, some of you may have had the tragic experience of having a parent or a coach constantly declaring, you're worthless. You'll never get it right. You'll never count. You'll never amount to anything. That is not the point there's a big difference between being unworthy and being worthless. You know, we are unworthy of God because our sin separates us from Him. It makes us dead. But that does not mean we're worthless before God. You know, Genesis 1 were, reveals we're in His image. Psalm 8 declares that God crowned us with glory and honor. In college, Sarah and I attended a large group Bible study. We'd often sing a song that had these words. Upon the cross of Jesus, mine eyes at time can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess, the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. So do you recognize your unworthiness, not your worthlessness? You are, you do have worth. And I hope we recognize our unworthiness, but not to then merely focus on that because the song didn't stop there. Rather, we also then wonder at God's redeeming love for one unworthy like me. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we rejoice at what you've done. Lord, it is so common to think that we're all basically good. We're all just got some little faults. Yet, Lord, may we see the depth of our condition and then may we flee quickly to you where the only solution is found in your son's death and resurrection. That by turning from sin and trusting in him, he makes us not just moral, he makes us come alive to move from death to life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.